Welcome everybody to HIV in Focus. This is a podcast series created by Gilead Sciences to explore the most pressing issues for people living with HIV and to provide practical bite-sized tips for clinicians from experts in the field. I am Dr. Naomi Sutton. I'm a consultant physician working in sexual health in Rotherham. I've been lucky enough to have a number of media roles, including the sex clinic on E4, and I try to use these platforms to educate the wider public on all topics surrounding sex. This podcast will be about healthy ageing for people living with HIV, and I'm delighted to have Tom Levitt, who's our expert today. Tom is a consultant in elderly medicine with a special interest in frailty and HIV, so there's nobody better to educate us on this topic. Tom, tell us a bit more about yourself. Thanks, Naomi. So I'm Tom Levitt. I'm a consultant geriatrician down in Brighton. I did my PhD in HIV and ageing and I work at Brighton and Sussex Medical School as senior lecturer in frailty. So very much my research and clinical life keeps me in contact with individuals living with HIV who are ageing and experiencing a range of problems. We run a once monthly silver clinic where we look at all aspects related to ageing in those living with HIV. Brilliant. So tell us, Tom, why do we need to know about this topic? Because I must say it was a long time since I was at medical school. So my knowledge of frailty and elderly medicine as a subject, I think, is probably pretty rusty. Well, I think frailty has generally become a hot topic. And I think over time we're all experiencing that the group of people that we look after, irrespective of our specialty, has changed with a focus more towards older adults And for those caring for people living with HIV, the cohort is getting older. So about 42% of people are aged over the age of 50. Now, this is an artificial cutoff. It's been taken as what constitutes an older adult with HIV from an epidemiological stats research perspective. It doesn't mean that there's something that happens to you when you hit 50, but that's just how we're collecting data at the moment so it's around 42,000 people in the UK so you know it's approaching half and we're actually seeing larger numbers reaching 65 which might be a more traditional age cut off people are probably using 50 in other areas as well so people that are survivors of childhood cancer or other chronic diseases that might occur earlier in life so yeah it's about something that might happen around this time two individuals living with HIV, which might mean that they experience different ageing compared to people without. Okay, so my learning point from that is we need to be thinking about a much younger cohort than what I would traditionally think of as, well, I guess, elderly. Yeah, I think so. And it's about trying to recognise that the patients that are coming to see you, your service users that are coming, may be starting to experience age-related problems that you might not think to ask about because of that kind of arbitrary age cutoff. They're all going to have different experiences. We know that in terms of normal aging, there isn't a cutoff. So 50 for HIV, we might use 65 in a general population. If you think about what the public thinks about it, they say you don't start getting older until you're well into your 70s. Mm-hmm. And if you ask a 90-year-old, they don't feel old at all. So there's this discrepancy between felt age and actual age and if you've got a negative one i.e there's a gap you feel younger there is evidence with regards to quality of life and well-being as you get older so it's good to maintain that and then it's trying to identify those people that perhaps feel the other way so it's it's really variable and we just have to recognize that for every point in life there are always going to be people within that age group that are aging well and some people are aging not so well okay so I'm in clinic and I see a 55-year-old patient. What are the 
main things that I need to be starting to ask or somebody older, for example? Because as we know, our cohort is only going to get older. What we need to think about is moving perhaps away from like individual comorbidities. So Mm -hmm. for me as a a geriatrician, I'm seeing lots of people that have got multimorbidity. So it's the interaction of multiple comorbidities. So I think there's always going to be that side of things. So what medical problems have you got? How well are they controlled? But then trying to start to think about what may be more specific to older adults. So you start to see an increase in falls and particularly Mm -hmm. recurrent falls. You might experience problems with day-to-day activity. So we might group that as functional decline or functional difficulties or functional impairment. So can you still do the things that you need to do? People may experience immobility, so difficulty walking before they fall. And then there is the issue of frailty, which might be a way of screening people I guess Mm -hmm. to try and then have a conversation which encompasses all of these but for me personally I think the important things are anything changed with your walking have you started falling over are you finding day-to-day tasks more difficult and I think it's perhaps a more accessible way of chatting to someone about it you may see those changes oh look you don't look like you're walking so well as before I think these are just sort of gateway questions that allow you to open up a kind of area that perhaps they haven't been asked about before because there is probably a misconception about what is normal aging so a lot of people will attribute what's happening to them because they just think that's normal as you get older but there may be an underlying problem Mm. which has caused a functional decline whereas a geriatrician it's my job to kind of identify what the change is and what may have precipitated that change. It might go back to mood and memory and social circumstance, but it gives you an opportunity to ask some questions about it. And we were talking earlier, weren't we? I I like your little phrase, move it or lose it, which I'm definitely going to adopt. Yeah, I think that's, um, it's really helpful. In my world as a geriatrician, I look after a rehab unit and I've been there today and for for various reasons someone may start to develop problems with walking mobility and there is a tendency that if you can't do as much you don't do as much mm. or you're not inclined to do as much or you don't want to do as much but actually it starts this spiral of decline which is whereby you're going to lose muscle as you get older naturally we're, we're all going to decline across physiological systems and this is what leads to frailty in the first place mm. but you know, it is thinking about, well, what can you do to try and mitigate against that? And certainly exercise, walking, pushing yourself, keeping active is one of the mainstays, I would say, of trying to maintain healthy aging. Things as simple as walking can be really beneficial, can't they? Both for mood and for muscle, protecting your muscles, etc., and bones. Certainly, we should just be guiding people towards healthy amounts of exercise generally you know sort of government Mm. level if possible of moderate exercise any physical activity that you can encourage people to do is going to be beneficial all around and we definitely know that it has a role in terms of mental health Mm. and paradoxically trying to if mental health is the barrier to engaging someone in that then that should be tackled to allow or, or as part of a program that works side by side I think and do you have any really good ways to motivate people is there any evidence to show that certain things make a difference not that I've seen from an evidence perspective and and you're right it's really difficult and certainly thinking about the clinic and the way we perhaps see people in clinic people come because they're referred with age-related problems or we do do frailty screening in Brighton or we will just pick up people that, that have got age-related concerns that we see so some people's concerns are very much 
wrapped up in psychology and their own personal circumstance. And I think it has to be individualized to what's going on with them at the time. You know, in the past, I've engaged with families that perhaps overdoing stuff for people to try and step back a little bit to encourage that person to do more. Move it or lose it works a bit because if you talk to people about where it may end up, so for example, if you've got someone who has got functional decline, decreasing mobility, starting to fall, needing care, well, the trajectory really is towards needing higher levels of care, your life space. We talk about life space in elderly medicine, which is where you can go. And as you become more functionally impaired, that life space shrinks to the point that, you know, you might end up in a bed or a care home or a bedroom. But if you start to think about, okay, what might be the end if we don't do anything, you might be able to draw people back in. But I think it comes down to mood. I think it comes down to personal circumstances, personal resources, and you're always going to have to do more for some. And that might not be you as the clinician looking after them. That may be your community colleagues. That may be the third sector, well-being services from your local authority, just like a group that is in your area that doesn't necessarily need to be HIV specific, but may be inclusive. So suggesting, I guess, volunteering or joining even a book club or go and borrow my doggy, which is a website where you can borrow dogs. Yeah, there's evidence for volunteering in terms of well-being in older adults, particularly if you've got some sort of intergenerational element. So often older adults, you're talking about people, you've got a wealth of experience, you've got something that you could share. So sharing wisdom, sharing knowledge, sharing skills, particularly if there's intergenerational elements have been shown to be the most fulfilling for people. But yeah, being part of community really helps. And, and that's difficult if you're in a community where you perhaps don't feel like you fit in anymore and, and we talked about this uh, when we when we met before about particularly the lgbtq community and, and those people that have worked tirelessly to create sort of this community safe spaces and then they get older and they don't perhaps feel at home there anymore and they start to experience ageism so there's stuff that 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 we need to do as a society to engage older adults generally i think mm. and i think ageism is quite an important thing to think about as well because we know that the large proportion of people being diagnosed late are older yeah you're totally right if you know think about all those people that are involved in safe sex campaigns prep trying to reduce diagnoses the the gap the area that we're missing is people over the age of 50 particularly heterosexual individuals so there's a bit about society isn't there that we don't recognize that older adults are sexual beings and we don't ask the right questions i think it's for us as non-hiv specialists to learn from you guys about reminding us about indicator diseases that we don't misattribute things to normal aging that we go around the houses investigating things when we could simply have done an hiv test my experience though is actually in my practice if i see someone who's got unexplained weight loss or they've got you know a thrombocytopenia or something and you ask an 80 year old woman have you had sex any time between now and the late 70s, mid 70s? And they say yes. And you say, oh, you know, have you heard of HIV? And you ask them about testing. They feel really nice. You know, well, not nice. They, they feel like, well, one, they think you do it as routine anyway, so that it's not a thing that you should be asking them about. And two, that you've kind of thought of them as a bit of a sexual being that you would ask them about something like HIV. So I, in my experience, have never really had anyone turn me down when I've spoken to about the reason for doing an HIV test. So we've talked a bit about obviously getting walking to keep your muscles and your hearts going. Tell us a bit about FRAX scores, because obviously part of the Beaver guidelines are supposed to be doing FRAX. 
which I mean, looking at audits, we're not very good at doing them. But tell us a bit about how that can help us with managing our patients. I don't use FRACs as liberally as I should. So obviously the guidance is different for individuals living with HIV and FRAC scoring starts earlier. In the general population, it's over 65 in general population for women and over 70. And that's really in relation to people that either have risk factors or are falling. It's kind of helpful if it starts you on a discussion about trying to reduce someone's fracture risk. I often meet people that have already fractured. So then we're obviously thinking about secondary prevention and treatment. Mm. It will really only take into account hip fractures but other fractures if they've had them will mean that they underestimate and perhaps you should just be thinking about you know if you're dealing particularly with a 50 year old postmenopausal woman asking whether they fractured already because if someone's had a fallen and they've fallen on their outstretched hand and they've already done a college fracture which they may not see as a fragility fracture you're actually down the secondary prevention pathway anyway so just making sure you've asked people about fractures and at what age they occurred and what level of trauma and really the event that's going to cause that person to fracture is a fall so for me as a geriatrician I think a question around falls is always helpful and actually interestingly I was re-looking at the EACS guidance and that has simplified its falls section it recommends a falls question for all people over the age of 50 and it's just as simple as this may not apply to you but just since I last saw you have you fallen over and then trying to get some idea about the circumstances now I'm quite clumsy. I slip, I trip, I fall all the time. Um, uh, I've moved into a new house and I seem to fall over here more than I ever did in my old place. But if you fall, it's worth asking whether it's a single fall or it's a recurrent fall. And the literature tells us that we underdiagnose falls in individuals living with HIV and we underappreciate the importance of them. So for recurrent fallers, that's always a bit of a red flag to me because it's like okay so is there something internal intrinsic to that person which is calling them to fall over there might be something environmental that they always fall over their dog or their slippers or they like to wear a certain type of footwear whatever that may be but it's it just opens the door to the question so what happened at the time making sure people aren't losing consciousness trying to think about postural symptoms because that becomes more common as you get older and particularly when you add in the medications people might be on various types of autonomic neuropathy of which HIV can be a cause and at the time just to check no sort of cardiovascular symptoms you're not having a a fit and once you've excluded those kind of things you can think about who might be the best person to see that and that may be a full service that may be a joint HIV service may just be going back to the GP but just highlighting that actually this person started to fall because falls are embarrassing falls are embarrassing continence is embarrassing saying that you're struggling to get yourself washed and dressed is embarrassing it's just allowing a space to say, do you know, actually, yeah, since I saw you, I'm falling over pretty much once a month and I don't know what's happening to me. And that's really important because you might identify that person that's got cardiac syncope or postural hypotension or all of these things that start to happen as you get older. Yeah, I like that. That's a great opening question. So have you fallen recently? And then you can go into the details around it, check the lying and standing blood pressure, ask more questions about the event, I suppose. And then that might open up other questions into how they're coping at home, loneliness, activities, daily living. Yeah, I think it's about acknowledging that the people coming to see you and the evidence suggests that people like to come, right? They like to come. They like to have face-to-face contact. They like longitudinal contact with someone that they know well. 
But what they're coming for may change over time. Mm -hmm. And just giving them the opportunity to talk about age-related issues. I think we probably focus very heavily on cognition and memory because of the association with HIV neurocognitive disorders. But ultimately, for me, these kind of functional disorders, which are going to have an impact and are going to worry people, that they may just not talk about. So having like some opening questions around how you're finding day-to-day stuff, are you falling over, anything you're particularly worried about that, you know, my phrase in clinic is anything you're expecting to talk about today that we haven't covered is what I Mm. normally say. In the clinic, I don't do a lot of clever medicine. I stop a lot of tablets. I listen to people and I reassure a lot of people that what they're experiencing is wholly normal. And that even if there is something that's happening, like they're finding something difficult, there are ways around it. And I might not be the person to help them with that because I'm not an occupational therapist. I'm not a physiotherapist. So just working out who the right person is. And that may be a community navigator. That may be a peer support. That may be a group. That may be an online community. It may be something that isn't me, but it allows you that opportunity to talk to them about it. Mm. I I think it's a good reminder as well, too, because I think sometimes we focus a lot on HIV, don't we? We focus on our medication. Are they taking it? And then if someone is very adherent and very simple, we go, okay, then bye. Whereas actually we could be using that time in clinic to, you know, be a bit nosier, I suppose. I would say that anyone falling, it's a good idea to look at their drugs. I think it's always difficult to try and fiddle with medications if you're not the primary prescriber. And I think everyone has difficulty with that. GPs, specialists, whoever that may be. Because when you sort of dip outside your area of expertise, it becomes a little bit uncomfortable. But medicines optimization is a key part of the beaver guidance for people over the age of 50. It's mentioned in EAC's guidance. It's good practice for people that are falling it is recommended for those people over the age of 65 in general practice and I think it should always be part of our practice to try and make sure that everything that is on someone's drug list is appropriate to make sure that we try and de-prescribe inappropriate drugs as a geriatrician people seem to sort of you know they think that's part of our job so they kind of are quite helpful the other thing is that talking to patients about it because some patients are very wedded to certain drugs that they may have been on for a long time and they might attribute a benefit that they see to that drug and perhaps not appreciate how as they've got older that drug is perhaps not so friendly to them Mm. so it is you know all stages I think it's everyone's role to just have a look at medicines and make sure people are happy with them that they're comfortable that they're still there for the right reasons they're taking them as a ten intended because we know that individuals living with HIV will favor their antiretrovirals over their other medications and that there is a process of review and and that's where you've got excellent clinical pharmacists that will help with that. Yeah and I guess through this whole process of aging healthily the whole point of this is for a good quality of life isn't it so if something is giving you lots of side effects one one of your medications it's worth thinking about why we're actually giving it and ultimately it's about what the patient wants and that would be in line with the multi-morbidity guidance from nice which is you know we should all be about patient-centered care anyway Mm. so in my population so we're talking about much older individuals one they're not involved in the trials they were never the single organ person that the drug was intended for in the first place doesn't take into account the drug interactions between all the individual guidance-based drugs that you're on, the burden of those medications, whether someone can take it anymore because of either functional or cognitive impairment, 
over and above whether they're seeing the benefit. So we can start to relax targets around things like blood pressure, cholesterol levels, thinking about bone protection, how long we keep people on it. But, you know, we're talking a bit about older ages. But if you're having people that are struggling with their medicines, then you are going to have to make some pragmatic decisions around that. And I don't think people should be worried about that if you're doing that in conjunction with the the person. So, Tom, I'm going to try and sum up what I've learned from your extensive knowledge and wonderful brain. So for me, I'm going to try in clinic to definitely be more holistic and think about, I guess, preempting frailty because that's how to get people to live healthier, isn't it? So thinking about, well, asking, have they fallen? What sort of exercise they're doing? Not just from a cardiovascular and bone prevention, but also from muscle mass and keeping their brain going and keeping them healthy and less lonely is there anything else what what are your three top tips that we can do to help our aging population so top tip one have an approach whereby you can ask about aging issues now for some people that may be frailty screening and that may be the pathway in but i think a collection of just simple questions which encompass this is helpful because ultimately a screen is only a screen and you're going to have to follow it up with questions Two, be prepared to reassure people that what they're experiencing is wholly normal and that actually transitions to older age may be a really difficult time in someone's life there's a lot around losses of roles and societal roles and perhaps you might be approaching retirement or your kids are moving away from home or various bits and pieces so it is a time of flux and it's a time of change but it is a time that you can prepare for and that's where this stuff about being psychologically robust being as fit as possible being a good body mass index moderating behavioral risk factors but that's part of everyone's practice and so that you're prepared and moving away from that frailty model which is very reactive to proactive healthy aging and I would just say foster some relationships with geriatricians we tend to be quite nice people you don't need a clinic we have a clinic because we've got quite a lot of people I've got an interest in it but just someone that you can pick up the phone to and say I've got this difficult person who is falling over or is having immobility that's a symptom people struggle with that can just offer some advice or point you towards the pathways to get someone into care and that might not be in the hospital that may be in the community. Brilliant Tom is there anything else that we need to say? I think a lot of people are scared about getting older, but actually it's a time of enlightenment and wisdom Mm -hmm. and opportunity to speak your mind and freedom to perhaps take your life in a whole different direction. And I think we should all be there to advocate for really happy older lives and just to try and make sure that, that your service and that your institution doesn't have any hidden ageism really. I totally love that. That is a perfect way to sum up. (laughs) Thank you very much. Tom, are there any social media handles that we can find you on? At Dr. Tom Levitt is my Twitter. I'm a rubbish tweeter, but uh, (laughs) if you send me interesting stuff, I will look at it. Excellent. Thank you for listening to this episode of HIV in Focus. If you enjoyed it, do tune in to one of the other episodes from the series found at gileadpro.co.uk. HIV in Focus has been created and fully funded by Gilead Sciences. Mm-hmm.